0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world r- really works. Thank you for being part of the show. And thank you for remembering that to be a happy warrior is a noble cause. There is real value in it. And I always point out that this is not um, just a phrase that I made up, but that the, the term happy warrior was, as far as I know, originally coined by the English poet William Wordsworth. And I I tell you this from time to time, uh, but there's a reason why I mention it. Uh, Wordsworth wrote the poem in 1806. That's quite a while ago. And uh, why did he do it? Well, it turned out that the Battle of Trafalgar had just been won by Admiral Horatio Nelson. And uh, he actually, in the closing phases of the naval battle, which took place in the English Channel off the coast of Spain, um, he actually got shot by a French sniper and perished uh, soon thereafter. But um, uh, Nelson is seen as one of England's greatest heroes. And the reason is because not only did he have an unblemished naval career, but England was severely threatened by really what had become the most powerful force at the time, and that was the Napoleonic Alliance of France and Spain, and uh, Napoleon uh, was intending to invade England and really uh, do what Adolf Hitler hoped to do in 1941 and 1942, and um, the realization that the capture of Europe and the dominance of that entire part of the world could not be achieved without also subjugating the British Isles. And so Napoleon uh, decided that he had to do that. And he had his fleet that had been somewhat bottled up in some of the ports along the, uh, the Channel Coast, uh, they finally ventured out and Nelson sallied out to meet them. And through uh, brilliant planning and uh, effective execution, he ended up sinking, I think, 22 vessels of the Spanish-French alliance, losing none of his own. It was an overwhelming victory. And it forever destroyed Napoleon's hopes of achieving dominance on the sea. And uh, what it really did was it really established the Royal Navy as the dominant force on the oceans of the world from that day in 1805 all the way up through World War II, or at least up to the uh, december 1941 in world war Two, when america entered the war and everything changed but uh, one of the reasons that the french fleet was in such bad shape was that the french revolution had just happened and uh large numbers of French military and naval officers had um, lost their lives in the revolutionary struggle, and even more of them just quit the military in disgust. Uh, One could actually see a bit of a parallel between that and what may be happening in the United States of America at the present time, where um, with the insanity of a government application of a COVID mandate, very large numbers of highly trained men and women are leaving the uniformed forces, the fire departments of the country, the police departments, the coast guard, and yes, the army and the Navy as well, uh, where uh, people are being told that they have to accept the uh, jab, the vaccine, many of them are choosing to go, and this probably does not bode well for any future military engagements in which the United States may find itself. Uh, this is certainly what brought down Napoleon and what caused the British victory at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Um, Britain had a tough, battle hardened navy. Uh, there was long continuity, there was cultural continuity, uh, leadership had been passed methodically uh, down from commander to subordinate, and uh, the result was it was a superior navy and uh, Napoleon had really the remnants of a navy, and the results were uh, pretty obvious and that's what happened so um, so 1805 Nelson dies at the conclusion just before the end of the battle of trafalgar but it's a huge victory and uh, he he really becomes a beloved hero of, uh, of of the english people if any of you have ever been to trafalgar square in london there's that beautiful fountain that takes up the whole sort of center of that block and in the middle is a tall column and on top of it is a statue of admiral nelson Um, that's that that's the degree of um, uh, approval and love in which he was held the esteem in which he was held so uh, William Wordsworth one of the eminent poets of the day does this poem the happy warrior or it's called the character of the happy warrior and that's where I take the phrase from, because the the poem both begins and ends with the phrase, who is the happy warrior? Who is he? What every man in arms should wish to be. And then that's the concluding line of the poem as well. But in between, he speaks about essentially the things we talk about, which is that, uh, uh, you know, there's a struggle. And for some people, like Admiral Nelson, it was a, a naval battle. But each and every one of us is dealing with a struggle and a battle every single day of our lives. And not only is it a battle against external forces, you know, trying to grow your family, trying to make sure that you build the connection and the attachment between your children and you, which is a difficult thing to do today because our culture has taken a dangerous and destructive turn towards making children from the youngest ages build their strongest attachments to their friends and not their parents and family. If you think about it, the way it used to be, Um, And even until the early 60s, when schools saw themselves as being in loco parentis, schools saw that their purpose was to teach the values of the families whose children were in their classrooms. That, of course, is now completely gone. And in the United States of America, what has been adopted is a socialistic model where the school sees itself as needing to undermine the child's attachment to the parents and instead build and strengthen the child's attachment um, to specifically the state and the apparatus and machinery of the state. And so uh, the, the task of a parent today in just making sure that the attachment that nature designed that attachment, that primary attachment should be between parents and children and children to parents. Uh, It's very hard to maintain that. And today, not only are geeks, (laughs) you know what a geek is, right? But I know there are always new listeners to the show. And so if you're a listener, you're saying, what is a geek? Well, the geek is a government indoctrination camp Which is the institution that used to be known as public schools. And so, not only do you have public schools trying to sever the relationship between your children and you and to diminish their attachment to you and replace it with an attachment to their social group and to their school and essentially to the mechanisms and apparatus of state. Um, Not only that, but social media, the whole idea of, uh, of TikTok and Facebook and all of these things are designed to keep your child permanently attached to friends rather than family. Um, you know, you, something you might want to look at, if your children are active on Facebook or on, uh, on Twitter or in any, any of these sites, look at them to see how much of their communication effort on these sites goes into connecting with, shall we say, grandparents or uncles and aunts or siblings And sadly, I think you'll probably find that the overwhelming majority of the effort expended by children today on digital communication um, is with friends, not with family. And so when I speak about a happy warrior having to focus on family, well, that's one of the five F's, and uh, it is indeed partially trying to cope with the fact that your children are being pulled away from family connection. Uh, You know, very often you hear of couples who plan on getting divorced, and one of the phrases they say over and over again is, uh, we were growing apart. Well, do something about that. Maybe you and your spouse are growing apart. And maybe that's not a good situation. You need to actually do something about it. So the fact is that, uh, you know, lying in a hammock, uh, having a bottle of beer and uh, and watching a movie is certainly much more fun and much more pleasurable than being a happy warrior and tackling the tasks that you need to tackle in order to build your family it's a battle there's no question about it and so it is with your finances you can't relax you can't stop worrying about it and dealing with it and taking care of it of course not and so it is with your physical fitness and your friendships and heaven knows your faith as well and so uh, that's why I speak about the, the phrase, the happy warrior, because it's a phrase that's deeply rooted in the English language. Um, as I say, you know, it's um, more than 200 years old. And uh, it's something that uh, I think really identifies what each and every one of us is trying to make of our lives to build our lives, grow our lives, improve our lives, and we do that by constantly being at war, not only with the external foes of finance and family and friendship and so on, doing all of those things, but each and every one of us, as a good happy warrior, is probably also at war with our own instincts and our own natures in many areas, right? Any person who's a happy warrior from time to time looks at himself and says, you know, I could actually be a better spouse. I could be a better child to my parents. I could be a better parent to my children. And you realize that you actually have the capacity to change. That's right, because unlike camels and cats and cows and kangaroos, we human beings can make changes today that will ensure that tomorrow is a different life for us than yesterday was. And What's interesting about this is that um, we uh, published, my wife and I published a uh, book. You know, most of what we publish is our own work. But every now and then, we get excited about something that someone else is doing, and we work out an arrangement so that we can bring their work to your attention if we feel it's something that can benefit you. And one of those books is is called Soul Construction. And uh, it's written by a fascinating woman called Ruchi Koval. She's a, a committed Bible observant Jewish woman. Uh, she lives in the Midwest. And uh, that book uh, is something we feel you will find useful in your journey as a happy warrior. And what I did is uh, I am interviewing her, and I'll let you hear that in in just a few minutes. I'll tell you about that. But uh, meanwhile, talking about Happy Warrior and talking about Wordsworth, it's important, I think, for me to spend a few moments urging you to become better at your communication in English. Now, you might be a native-born English speaker. You might not be. But one thing I can tell you, and it's it's true for me and it's true for everyone I know, and that is you could be a better communicator than you are, no matter how good you may be. You actually could be even better. And English is an important language. It's not just that it's the language of international aviation, I mean, whatever control tower, if you're flying a plane, whatever control tower you speak to, you will be talking in English. And uh, it's the international language of so many things, including so much of international business and finance. And so please give a little bit of effort to improving your English communication. It is definitely worth doing. How do you do it? it's simple i'm sure many of you have heard me talk about it many of you have read in my books where i describe how to do it Uh, but one of the things you need to do is well i can only say it you know spend a lot less time watching uh, pictures on a screen and spend a lot more time reading words on a page and by the way listening to an audio book counts as reading on a page. It's obvious, right? Because watching a picture uh, stifles the imagination and stifles the creativity. Watching a moving picture in a movie or a TV show is completely a passive activity. But when you are reading or listening to an audio book, your cognitive powers are constantly Translating abstract symbols like sounds, like the very sounds you're hearing me make right now, or the abstract symbols of letters and words on a page, they get translated into the ideas and the themes and the objects that are being described. Uh, really, really a worthwhile exercise, something you definitely want to be doing more of. So if you're thinking of how can I improve myself, how can I apply the techniques and the spiritual values of the happy warrior to myself, one of the things you could do is really work on improving your English communication. Now, you might ask me, well, you know, why English? Um, Surely it would be just as good to enhance your communication abilities in whatever language you speak. And I gave part of the answer earlier by saying that it is a uh, it's the language that is sort of emerged as the language of international connection. And so its usefulness extends way beyond just the uh, area in which you live or the group of people among whom you live or with whom you communicate. Um, Secondly, there's something more to it as well, and that is that it is a language particularly rich in vocabulary. And so the potential for precise articulation is enormous Um, I think in my view poetry and literature in English is more effective and more evocative in English than in other languages and there's something else as well and that is that it is the language of the English people now I am not um, a complete anglophile And um, I'm very, very aware of how the English treated uh, the people in Ireland, and and my sympathies are with the Irish. Um, I'm very, very aware of how the English treated the uh, Boers during, before and immediately after the Boer War in South Africa. And... It did. It took a half a million strong British army, a half a million men, shipped out to the tip of the African continent in order to defeat uh, 50,000 farmers on horseback. I mean, these were, these were unusual people. And uh, what's also fascinating to me is that the concentration camp that one tends to associate with Nazi Germany was actually invented by the British in South Africa, uh, finding that they were incapable of defeating this hardy, tough, religious band of men, a small, small band, comparatively speaking. England outnumbered them in terms of redcoats on the African field, 10 to 1, 50,000 men to 500,000 men. The only way that uh, Britain actually won in the end was by carting all the women and children off to concentration camps and burning the farms. And so the, uh, this, uh, this core of men who used to live off the land um, basically folded. There was nothing much they could do. Anyway, I'm, I'm telling you this just because uh, I don't think that what I'm about to say is the result of an infatuation with england i mean i'm going to tell you a lot of wonderful things about england as well it's not an accident that the industrial revolution took place there it's not an accident that it was partially the home of the invention of the corporation the idea of creating a legal entity um, to to do business it's a huge huge development in in the world of commerce so there are wonderful things as well but I I do take a balanced view on it. Nonetheless, it is relevant and unarguably true that there are many countries around the world in South America, in Central America, uh, in Africa, in parts of Asia, where there are countries that were former colonies of European powers Till colonialism went out of fashion and uh, faded away around about the 1960s, a little bit before in some cases, and uh, it's unarguable, it's just, it's just a fact, as, in, as inconvenient and as disturbing as it might be to some people, it's just a fact that countries that were former colonies of England are much more successful countries today than countries that were former colonies of France, Spain, or Belgium. It's just a reality. So you don't even have to think of Australia or New Zealand or Canada or United States of America or South Africa. You don't have to think of those places even. But, um, you know, Ghana, Ghana is far more successful than the Congo Places that England established as colonies and then left, they are in much better shape. Think of uh, islands in the Caribbean. There's French islands, uh, places like Haiti, for instance. What a mess Haiti is. And you can compare it with other islands in the Caribbean that had a British heritage, an English heritage, completely different. So, Uh, On today's show, I'm not going to explain why that is. That is a show all on its own. But for the moment, suffice it to say that there is something unusual about the English. As a matter of fact, one of the first languages into which the Bible was translated was, in fact, uh, into English. And this was in the 14th century so we're going back a long time well actually you know what i should probably start or i should probably start off with the gettysburg address in the darkest days of america's civil war it was uh, 158 years ago from you know while while i'm i'm recording this show at, at the present time 158 years ago it was in november 1863 uh, in Pennsylvania, in a battlefield called Gettysburg, where the North had just won a bloody battle against the uh, the South and pretty much sealed the fate of the Confederate Army, Abraham Lincoln made a speech that took all of about two minutes. Like it was a short speech, but it's a speech that was so powerful. Um, I've got family members who, who, who learned it by heart and still know it by heart. Many, many homeschooling families learn Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address because it is such a good example of how to use the English language to maximum effectiveness, not by a preponderance of words, but by the choice of the right words. And the Gettysburg Address ends with the words that uh, he hopes, and I quote now, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm sure many of you um, recognize those words. And those words, if you ask anybody in America, they'll, well, not, not illegal immigrants. But if you ask most people in America who are attached to American culture, where, do the, where does the phrase government of the people, by the people, for the people come from? Everyone will say, you know, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in 1863. Uh, but what almost nobody knows now And yet everybody listening to the speech in 1863 would have known is that those words were not originally Lincoln's words. He was quoting them and he was quoting them from the introduction to what I think was the very first translation of the Bible into English. Uh, the translation was done in the towards the end of the 14th century I'm going to say maybe 1375 1380 somewhere there and it was done by a man called John Wycliffe and uh, in his introduction to his bible um, he spoke about he said this bible is for the government of the people for the people and by the people and, uh, every, you know, people knew the Wycliffe Bible. It was a well-established well Bible. People knew it. And John Wycliffe uh, explained, I mean, he saw the Bible as the, the center of everything. In certain ways, you might say that he sort of foresaw the Protestant Reformation um, in terms of the centrality of the Bible. And up until that time, because people understood better then than they do now, how powerful the Bible is and how effective a tool it is in the hands of both individuals and societies, that obviously the church at that point wanted to retain the power of the Bible to itself and did not make it possible easily accessible to uh, people in general. And so John Wycliffe um, became an enemy of the church by translating the Bible into English there in England at the late in the 14th century. Uh, so much so, by the way, that after he died, they even buried him, they, they even dug him up and disinterred him and and sort of uh, burnt his remains and threw them into the river. I mean, he was reviled by the, the powerful authorities of the day. What was the terrible thing he did? He translated the Bible into English and made it accessible to everybody. That's what he did. And uh, later on, Um, uh, Tyndale, of course, translated the Bible as well, and then came the printing press in the middle of the 15th century, and uh, the Protestant Reformation had its roots set in in both the Uh, the access to the bible and by that time there were translations into uh, german and french and many of the continental languages and then the printing press came along and then came martin luther and the protestant reformation but um the the point is nonetheless just again english english Uh, it's please you know i often say make sure that you take the time and the trouble to learn how to read financial statements. That's an important part of one of the five Fs of finances, right? It's very simple. If you don't know how to measure something, you'll never be able to change it. And if you aren't able to measure your finances accurately, it's very difficult for you to grow them in an effective way. So uh, you've got to be able to know how to read financial statements, and you've got to be absolutely as... um, as fluent and as articulate as you can possibly be in the English language. And um, somebody for whom English is not a native language, but who is remarkably fluent in English, particularly in the written word, is one of our listeners. I may have mentioned him before. He is um, a young uh, man. He's an Inuit guy so he's a sort of indigenous guy from greenland and he serves as a seal in the danish navy because denmark has some kind of administrative arrangement with greenland you might remember there was a time where president trump was talking about buying greenland it was a negotiation with the danish government apparently at any rate um this gentleman uh, writes to me from time to time and uh, he came up with something which i want to repeat to you because i you may like it as as much as i did um it's it's poetic and again he he does this in english although that's not his native language by the way i don't think he's 20 years old yet if if he is then he's he's only 20. I mean, this is a very young guy and um, and and very uh, well written. So um, here he writes: as for this letter just came recently. Greetings, Rabbi and Susan Lappen. The stars are out tonight. That's rare up here. We have the Northern Lights. I was trying to write a poem about the stars, and I had a thought: if we are the only planet in the universe occupied by spiritual creatures, namely humans, then God must have made all the stars for us. Think about it. God spoke everything into existence except man. He created us. He didn't make earth and all the stars with humans as an afterthought. He designed it all with us in mind. We were the reason. Nature is God's love letter to us, his poetry, his art. What do we give him in return? Civilization. When we follow God's plan for our lives, we build a society that builds cathedrals and skyscrapers and houses and roads, etc. Civilization is our love letter to God. He gave us nature. We give him cities. I appreciate Copenhagen a little more thinking about it like that. I doubt that it is an original thought. There are probably a lot of really smart people who thought of that a long time ago. By the way, I don't know of any. I always feel like we are at a disadvantage not having access to computers, TV, and formalized education. Nia says, Nia is his young fiancé, Nia says that we lack knowledge but have wisdom I don't feel particularly wise as I write what is probably an obvious thing to you. Anyway, I thought I'd share a little encouragement with you. What you do is like a love letter to God. Keep up the poetry. Happy warrior reporting for duty. And he signs it with his initials, CG, and I know what the the letters stand for. But um, I just wanted to share that with you because I found it incredibly moving. Uh, what, a, what a great idea. And no, I've not heard anybody express this before. Um, God gives us the gift of nature. As he put it, nature is God's love letter to us. And we give him in return civilization and cities. Cities are an essential part of all that. Anyway, um, I love that and uh, I hope you do too, which brings me to the next point every now and then, and uh, it does happen, you change my mind about something. There are times where, much time, I'm telling you things that are not necessarily ancient Jewish wisdom, but they're my views. I'm giving you my opinion. I'm giving you what I do or what I think. And uh, more than once it has happened that your letters that have flowed into me after that uh, changed my mind. I read them carefully. I read them and I reread them. And I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong in what I said and I'll tell you what it is and um, I I think to many of you I sounded wimpy and I I sounded as if I was not a happy warrior I sounded as if I was somebody quick to surrender and I don't want to sound like any of those things because that's not who I am it's not who I want to be and it's certainly not who I want to think of myself as what am I talking about I was talking about vaccinations against uh, COVID and it was one and two vaccinations and then a a booster shot and who knows anyway, whatever it is, I told you that I have to teach having to teach means I have to be able to be at various locations around the world. And I said that if the only way to and it wasn't the case, and it isn't the case at the moment, I said, but if, for instance um the the ridiculous to totalitarian uh, mandates extend to air travel, then I'll probably just have to go along and get vaccinated because I need to be able to travel on a plane, and now. I'm not sure that that is true. I'm not sure that is right. Because I am now seeing that this governmental obsession with vaccination is uh, is now it's political. It's not health. It's not science. It is pure exercise of power. Now exercising power and inflicting your strength over other people is something that small human beings do. It's a petty activity. It's something that makes little people feel big. And um, in, in, many, in many countries, particularly uh, countries that were sort of emerging into modernity, uh, there were periods where their um government bureaucrats and clerks um were uh, were like that they 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 just you could see they took visible and obvious delight in imposing their power over everyone who was at their mercy and uh and I do believe that starting already a while back but accelerating dramatically over the last few years the tendency to distinguish between those who have power and those who are under the power uh, has become accentuated and that at almost every level from the president of the united states all the way to the uh, person serving you in the post office the tendency is to exert power the exert the the tendency is to show your power Uh, I see it a lot in the uh, cabin crew on airplanes today. They actually enjoy snarling at passengers about wearing the mask. This is a sad reality, but it is very much where we're at. And so I want to tell you what the basic facts are that, um, have changed my mind you all made me look into it and think about it very carefully uh it was your letters and your arguments and in some cases your um gently expressed disappointment in me and what i said and so i'm taking that back and uh, telling you i'm not going down without a fight and that uh, i am going to uh, resist this as long as possible I do not want to have it. I don't believe I need it. And I know what many of you say, well, the science says, I mean, I've heard this already. I've heard it a lot. The science says the vaccines are effective. So let me tell you my facts. Now, if you feel that anything I'm about to tell you is not a fact and is incorrect, you know, please correct me, but not just with vituperative essays, but with actual information. Let me tell you what I am now absolutely persuaded of. Number one, the survival rate of COVID is over 99%. And by the way, at the beginning in, um, in April 2020, I remember and i found government medical experts to say the vast majority of the population are not in any danger from COVID. And so um, uh, the um, infection fatality rate of COVID is uh, about 0.04%. That means the inverse of that, the survival rate is 99.5%. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is that I completely dismiss the lie that COVID has killed. The figure they're now doing is 700,000 Americans. I believe that's a lie. I told you that already uh, about a year ago, a little, little more than a year ago. I told you because a very brave researcher whose career has been severely damaged. She was a researcher at uh, Johns Hopkins University and um, she pointed out that uh, there are no excess rates of death. You know, if there's, if there's one thing that America keeps good records on its medicine. You know, we know we know average weights and heights of men and women of different ages because every time you go to the doctor, you all of that gets recorded and that data is available, not necessarily with your name and your details attached to it, but in terms of statistical data we know it. And we know what the death rate is in America. And we know how it grows as America's population grows. It grows predictably as well. I don't have to tell you that if between 2020 and 2021, there were 700,000 COVID deaths, we would know it. For one thing, coffin manufacturers and funeral parlors and crematorium would, would have that information. It's my friends. It is not there. Um, I saw information that said 2020 was the deadliest year in the United Kingdom since World War II. But this is misleading because it ignores the huge, massive increase in population since that time. If you really want to study... The mortality rates. If you really want to look into whether COVID has killed people, then the correct statistical measure, of which, by the way, we've got all the numbers, is something we call age standardized mortality rate. The age standardized mortality rate. And when you look at that which is a very reliable measure of deaths. 2020 isn't even the worst year for mortality since 2000. In fact, if you go back to 1943, there only, are only nine years that have been better than 2020. There were no excess deaths in 2020. Uh, in the United States, the, um, the age-standardized mortality rate for 2020 is the same as it was in 2004. In other words, nothing's changed. So, please be aware. Um, and and I'm, I'm not finished talking yet. I'm sure some of you are probably going frantic. How dare I say there are no COVID deaths? You know of people who, who died of COVID. I, yeah. And you also know of the motorcyclist who died in a motorcycle accident at 24 years old with a fractured skull and whose death was attributed to COVID. And I spoke about this on the show in 2020, pointing out that uh, the CDC actually advised medical staff around the country that if if there is any evidence of the presence of COVID when somebody dies, the death should be attributed to COVID. I know some of you are saying to yourselves, come on, why would anybody do that? And I intend telling you and explaining that as well. But, um, The bottom line is I am absolutely convinced after studying the correct statistics, in other words, looking not just at deaths, but age standardized mortality rate, which is the statistical measure that was developed many, many, many years ago for measuring precisely this, which is, you know, are there any abnormal uh, changes to what would be seen as a normal death rate? So um, that. That leaves us without any doubt whatsoever that COVID death counts are artificially inflated. Inflated, and it's not just the United Kingdom, the United States, but countries around the world are all defining a COVID death as, and I'm quoting now from the from the uh, from the medical information, a, de- a COVID death is a death by any cause within. Um, 30 or 60 days of a positive covid test some countries 30 some countries six so in other words if somebody dies and they had a covid test uh, three weeks ago but they died because of a fall off a uh, off a roof that gets li- uh, that that gets listed as a covid death um and by the way this i i have seen uh, health officials in italy germany the United Kingdom, the United States, Northern Ireland, as well as others, all acknowledge that this practice is how they do it. So, I'm, I'm not telling you sort of underground information. Uh, this isn't from the dark web. Uh, countries say, yeah, that's what that's what we do. Um, and, I mean, if you think about it, right, if you take away, remove all distinctions between dying of COVID and dying of something else after testing positive for COVID, naturally it's going to lead to massive overcounting of COVID deaths. All right, and um, the the fact is that in 2020 already many pathologists in Britain and the United States were warning of this of this substantial overestimate. Now I know you're thinking, why would they do that? I'll tell you. Still, so. Um, uh, then the next thing, the next fact, these are the reasons why I, uh, object strenuously to the vaccine mandate. The next fact I want to tell you is, and again, you know, you might say, well, you're wrong. I'm telling you that I've researched and I'm satisfied for my life. And for me, everything I'm telling you are things I absolutely 100% am convinced are true and factual. Um, the vast majority of COVID deaths in all countries have serious comorbidities. Uh, When this all started in March 2020, the Italian government published statistics showing that 99.2% of their quote COVID deaths had at least one serious comorbidity. These include cancer, heart disease, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, kidney failure, diabetes, and many others, over 50% of COVID deaths had three or more serious pre-existing conditions, which brings us to the age of COVID deaths. The average age of COVID deaths in the countries I'm I'm researching, um, United Kingdom, United States, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, Australia. Um, did I say United States? Yeah. The average age of COVID deaths, what do you think it is? You want to take a guess? I'll, I'll give you five seconds. Um, um, it's 82.5 years old. Do you know what the uh, life expectancy in all of these countries is? 79 years old is the average life expectancy. So, in other words, uh, the average age of a COVID death. In all of these countries I'm talking about, United Kingdom, America, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, Israel, 82 and a half years old is the average age of people who die of COVID. And so no big surprise that there are comorbidities, right? It's kind of normal for 82-year-old people to have various problems. Does this sound like a real epidemic of frightening proportions? Not to me. Um, so, um, the fact is that, uh, when the Spanish flu early in the 20th century came to America, it caused a 30% drop in life expectancy. That's serious. That was terrible. I, I've read stuff about that period of the, the, the awful, just absolutely horrifying. COVID has caused zero drop in life expectancy in the uh, year and a half, two years that's been going on. So, uh, this is really, really important. Um, so, uh, I suppose of the, the well, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, um I would also tell you... Oh, let me tell you two more things. One is hospitals were never unusually overburdened. The whole argument for lockdowns was flattening the curve. Do you remember all of that? Because we're going to overwhelm the hospitals and we need to have more ventilators. We need every factory in the country to start building more. We never reached any of these predictions. Nothing. Never happened. Um... And finally, I want to tell you one more thing, and that is the PCR test that everyone takes, right? If you've had this thing stuck up your nose, you took a PCR test. Um, The PCR tests uh, are not designed to diagnose illness. They're designed to show up COVID. Um, What's this got to do with? It has to do with what's called the cycles. Essentially, um, PCR tests are run in cycles. The number of cycles you use to get the result is known as your cycle threshold. Think of a cycle as um, searching for your car keys in your living room. If you do a one a quick thirty second sweep of your living room, you probably don't find the car keys. But if you do it again and again and again and again, you'll eventually find the car keys. Um, CPR t- PCR tests <laughs> PCR tests are um, are run like 30 40 and more cycles and uh, the truth is that any test with a cycle threshold above 35 is too sensitive it's crazy you you will find a a COVID virus in a can of motor oil if you're going to run it at 40 cycles Uh, some labs in the u.s are running as high as 45 cycles the uh, the um and, and the National Institute of Health in America sets the standard operating procedure for PCR tests. They set the limit at forty cycles, and so on that basis, the majority of PCR test results are, at the very best, questionable. So, um, <clears throat> uh, the 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 World Health Organization, by the way, of which I'm no fan. I found a briefing memo on the PCR process, on the test process, that the WHO put out instructing labs to be very wary of high CT values, high cycle values, causing false positive results. Uh, I'm quoting now from the World Health Organization document. When when specimens return a high cycle value, it means that many cycles were required to detect. Excuse me, I'm sorry. When specimens return a high CT value, meaning showing the, uh, uh, the virus, it means that many cycles were required to detect the virus. In some circumstances, the distinction between background noise and artificial presence of the target virus is difficult to ascertain. Uh, they released this year, they released another memo, asymptomatic positive PCR tests should be retested because they might be false positives. So, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, For these and many other facts that I don't want to take more time on, uh, I am absolutely convinced that the lockdowns were horrible. They were a dreadful mistake. I think that masks are completely unnecessary and that the uh, covid vaccine is an attempt um, to frankly to get the populace more accustomed to obeying orders (laughs) i really do i i really think so that's what it is but i did say that i would tell you why is it i mean who on earth would have any interest in making the covid epidemic worse than it really is I mean, it would appear, according to the facts that I have satisfied myself on, you know, this just was not anything even approaching what we had at the beginning of the twentieth century with the flu, not not even remotely close. And that, um, and and there are other concerns, by the way. Uh, one of my concerns is, and and here I'm not speaking factually; I don't know this clearly, but I am worried that the vaccine based as it is on the kind of technology it uses could stop my body from doing its regular antibody production right? i'm i'm not knowledgeable about that but i am looking into it uh, but why who has any interest in making this a worse thing than it is well you'll remember that one of the doctrines of leftism um, is never let a crisis go to waste because if your goal is expanding government power if that's your goal totalitarianism is what you seek then a crisis is always a wonderful opportunity to do so very very worth doing so um, who is it who could possibly have any interest let me explain Let us say that you're a dishonest employee, and you've been working for a company, and you've got yourself into the habit of stealing from the till, and you know it's only a matter of time before you're going to be caught. It always happens. You know, eventually there's an audit. Eventually somebody sees you. Eventually uh, there's an accounting, and they realize that uh, somebody's skimming money out of the cash register. And you've been doing it for a long time because it's very easy to become addicted to it. You suddenly are getting money for nothing. And you originally you were just borrowing from the cash register from your boss. You were going to pay it back, but you weren't able to pay it back. You took a little bit more. And now it's a big sum of money that you have uh, taken. Would you not love to have a big fire in the company? that destroyed all the inventory and destroyed all the records, wouldn't that be like the best thing for you? That's right. Um, Imagine that, uh, you know, imagine you work on a carnival cruise line. Let's say you're the captain or a first officer on a carnival cruise line, and you've been persuading passengers to put their jewelry and their valuables in the safe. And you, meanwhile, have been keeping it and you've been uh, handing it off to a a collaborator at every port at which you stop. And uh, you've been building up quite a nest egg. But you know the day of reckoning is going to have to come because when the cruise ends, all the passengers who you persuaded to give you their valuables to place in the ship safe, they're going to ask for it back. And so you're living in dread. Wouldn't you love for the ship to sink and go down? You'd love for that to happen. It it, it solves your problems. I wonder if you see where I'm going with this. Um, One of the things that happened during the Stalinist era was they used to speak of famines. Oh, there's another terrible famine. There's no rain. This is happening. That's happening. Why do you think they did that? Well, because socialism causes people to starve. Socialism failed to transport food from the farms to the city because socialism wanted to do away with the middleman. Everything belongs to the people. Well, the trouble is that millions of people from Moscow to Vladivostok uh, were not able to go pick food in the field, and they used to depend on a marketplace, and communism killed all that. And so, obviously, Stalin created famines because that way blame can be deflected from the genuine culprit. My friends, if you want to know why governments around the world have loved this epidemic and have done everything they can, as you can see, I mean, increasing, uh, inflating the numbers of the dead, Beyond all anything that's even reasonable. Um, And why are they doing that? Because there are a lot of unpaid government promises that have been made. And the chickens were going to come home to roost. And eventually it was going to become clear that the regulatory environment in America was stifling industry and that the union um, organization that had been promoted and generated and built by the democratic party in america that that was causing companies to move production out of the united states of america Uh, all of this in due course it was going to come home to roost and eventually fingers were going to be pointed at the guilty parties and now the best thing on earth happened a COVID epidemic and that's why I'm sure you've noticed wherever you live in the world and whatever it is you're trying to do, um, you know, you, you call up a company that's supposed to supply you with something. You, you try and get some information from the government. You try and get something from the post office. For heaven's sake, people have been trying to get the government to release information on the Kennedy assassination in 1963 and nothing happens and the blame is all, uh, due to COVID. How many times have you seen that phrase due to COVID? Right. All of a sudden, now you go to an American hotel and there's no um, room service. There is no uh, uh, fresh towels. COVID. It's all due to COVID. But what do you think this is doing to the bottom line of hotel and the hospitality industry? It's pretty good. COVID has been an absolute bonanza. All you have to do is look at the financial performance figures of many, many, many American companies. 2020 was one of the best years many of them had. Yeah, well, obviously. And so that really is what it is that is going on here. And so I apologize for having told you uh, a few weeks back that if uh, push came to shove to get on a plane, I would participate in the uh, vaccination program. Uh, I've changed my mind on that. And uh, I thank you all for helping me regain a correct perspective on this and uh, changing is what we're all about making ourselves more than we were yesterday i've told you before in the show the very worst words to ever have anybody say is i am what i am you don't want to say that you want to say i'm not yet all i could be and uh, ruchi koval in her new book soul construction a book that we published and is available at our website. That's right, at rabbdanielappel.com. You can communicate. You can acquire your copy of the Rabbi Daniel Lappen Bible, and uh, you can also get Ruchi Karval's book, uh, Soul Construction. Take a look. Uh, by the way, if you want to get it digitally, uh, you just go to Amazon and get it for your Kindle. No problem. Uh, Her last name is spelled K-O-V-A-L, K-O-V-A-L, Koval, and the name of the book Soul, as in S-O-U-L, Construction. And uh, I uh, very much enjoyed my conversation with her, and I hope you do too. And after uh, the interview, I will be back with a few more pieces of information. I'm speaking with Ruchi Koval who just has a brand new book out. And uh, I think you all know how seldom it is that I have an interview on this show. Uh, in, in general, I am far too jealous of the limited amount of time I have with you every week. And uh, I'm just reluctant to share it. That's all there is to it. But But this is an exception because this book I believe, is something that you would not have heard about in the ordinary scheme of things. And uh, it's something I think you will want to know about. So that's why we're, we're doing this. And, um, and the book is called Soul Construction. And it's, it's a great title because it tells you exactly what it does. And, and you know, we've spoken many, many times on this show about the reality that the human being is both body and soul, and that whether you are interested in relationships, romantic relationships, social relationships, business relationships, failing to understand that the uh, you and the other party are both spiritual beings as well as physical beings uh, is an enormous handicap and uh, and you know we we talk a lot about the 5f's and it's true that we 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 speak of fitness uh, the good lord gave each of us a body and it's incumbent upon us to look after it as best we possibly can now I am not a nutritionist, and I don't run a gym, even though a few months ago I did joke about having all our power generated by a room full of women operating stationary bikes connected to generators, and I had to go to great lengths to tell you all that wasn't true because you all thought that was a fabulous idea. But uh, no, we do not have a gym here, but uh, when it comes to fitness, we say, look – speak to a nutritionist, go and talk to a gym. Uh, There there are people who are professional at this, they will be able to guide you specifically. Uh, We speak about finances, and we speak about family. And sometimes we don't have all the specific how to answers. But uh, the great thing about this complicated world in which we live is that there are people who do. And so, when it comes to relationships, relationships with family, relationships with friends, and, uh, and perhaps even relationships with yourself, would that be true, Rohi?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. I just, there's so many different ways to, to gain wisdom about all of those different types of relationships, and they also all overlap with each other. They do. None of them exist in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, no, they they absolutely do and uh and your book tackles them all. And um, you you have your book divided into eight sections, eight yes. chapters. And um I'm going to read out the the chapter titles before we dive in a little bit. Uh chapter 1, favorable judgment, new ways of seeing. Chapter 2, forgiveness, a gift to others as well as ourselves. Chapter three, acceptance. Accepting others can be so hard, but we can do it. Chapter four, generosity. It's about much more than money. You can see already where this is going, right? You can tell that this is getting right down to the heart of your makeup and how you interact with others. Chapter five, speech, creating reality with our words. Chapter six, silence, a path to wisdom. Uh, Chapter 7, Renewal, Coming Home to Yourself. Chapter 8, Happiness, Another Inside Job. Great titles, great topics, great subject matter, and great book. Um, You're very well known in the Jewish community, Ruchi. Um, You know, whenever I speak to people, in the jewish community about you and about your other books and your work oh everybody knows about you but um assume that our listeners today have never heard of you before okay you know when um when in the book of jonah the sailors ask jonah they asked him four questions, you know, what's, where are you from? What's your family, your religion, your profession? And he gave the one comprehensive answer, Ivri Anochi. I'm a Hebrew. Um, and you could probably answer something like that as well. But I'd, I'd love a much more comprehensive <laughs> response to tell me about yourself.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, let's see. I was born in uh, New York. My family lived there until I was six years old. My father passed away when I was six. He was 30, um, which changed the trajectory of my life, obviously, in a number of ways. My mother remarried a man from Cleveland, which brought me and my family to Cleveland. We moved back to back to the family that would become my in-laws. And so Providence brought me right to my husband's literal backyard And uh, I grew up with a very, very strong and comprehensive Jewish education. I went to Jewish day school my whole life until 12th grade. And then I went to Israel for a year of intensive Jewish study. And shortly thereafter, I met my husband. We were both actually studying in Israel, so next door neighbor's now, are you saying
0: it. that you never met, although your your houses were back to back with one another, you didn't well, actually meet, you must have, come on.
1: Okay, so now you're getting personal. So I'll yeah. tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> well, we both went to, you know, religious Jewish day school. So there was separate, you know, boys education and girls education. So we were certainly family friends, we knew of each other, our sisters were friends, our brothers were friends. But you know, the way I grew up, we didn't, you know, socially date, really, it was more like when you were ready for, you know, a serious relationship, you would start to date in a serious minded way. So while we were definitely acquaintances, we didn't really socialize until, yeah, until we were both Older and ready to think about getting married, and that happened, you know, six thousand miles away from home in Israel. And so we met and dated there, and then we uh, we got married and lived in Israel. We lived there for almost five years. Our first. And during
0: date. that time, um, what what were you both doing apart from establishing a marriage?
1: So my husband was actually studying in rabbinical school. Um, which he was doing more for his own education than to actually be a rabbi. You know, we were quite young. We were in our early 20s. He didn't know yet what he wanted to be when he grew up, so to speak. Um, but he you thought were, that you were, he not,
0: you were 19 when you got married. Yes. And he was 22.
1: Exactly. So I was working for a publishing company. I've always loved reading, writing the English language. I was working for a publishing company there in Israel, which I loved. We also had three kids. So we were quite busy at the time, and then you know, in the introduction of my book, I explain what epiphany happened that he decided to become a rabbi, which was yes. certainly not something. No, he that's and I very. Had discussed. It's,
0: it's very gripping, actually. Those first few pages of the book are not only charming and and illustrative, but but they actually uh, pull you in because we do feel we get to know you.
1: Yeah, thank you, and and I, I will say that it was from that moment. You know, although I had certainly seen it before, but that we really felt the hand of providence leading us on our our path, you know, because we were young and we grew up together and we learned who we were together. um, And this was definitely, you know, God sort of nudging us along this path and saying, this is what you're meant to do. This is what you're meant to be. Um, and so eventually life took us to, Um, it goes
0: again to be personal, but I think for our listeners to understand, it goes without saying that neither of you had had any serious relationships with someone of the opposite sex up till now, up till that point.
1: No, in fact, to strengthen your point, he was the first guy, and I know this is going to sound pretty far out. He was the first guy I had ever dated and I was the first woman he had ever dated. So, and we felt extremely blessed to be able to have that, you know, to have that opportunity to only have have each other.
0: Have you found that any of your children um, hold that up as some kind of romantic ideal? You know, that there's something really, truly wonderful and beautiful and romantic about (laughs) marrying the first person you date? Yes.
1: And none of them them has had that experience.
0: Have you tried to disabuse them of this notion? (laughs)
1: Yes. We're like, guys, this is really, really rare and unusual, which they have definitely seen in their own lives.
0: No, that's, that's good. Yeah. Because we, uh, our children have heard us tell our story many times that, uh, we got engaged 12 days after our first date. (laughs) And then we always follow that up to our children. We're always saying, and don't you ever dream of doing that to us? (laughs) Exactly. So, okay. So, so, so there you are. And, um, And at some point, uh, you come back to the United States and your husband takes a uh, pulpit position in in a synagogue.
1: Correct. Yeah. So that brings us to Buffalo Grove, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And we lived there for two years. And we were very, very impacted by the community that we lived in. We learned a lot, you know, because we went from this very, very, you know, religiously rich and observant community in Israel to Buffalo Grove, Illinois, which is very, very Jewish, but not particularly religious. So it was really a very big contrast. Um, you know, when when we were living in Israel, we were very used to, you know, sprinkling our language with kind of Hebrew expressions and even Yiddish expressions. And then, you know, we get to Buffalo Grove, Illinois, and we almost had to learn a new way of talking. We had to filter all of that out because nobody knew what we were talking about. Um, So it was a very big adjustment, but we really did grow to love it. Uh, eventually, we really we, we felt very isolated from our family. We didn't have any family there, um, and so we moved to Cleveland. We moved back to Cleveland. That was in two thousand, so that was twenty one years ago. Um, and then we started building up our own community here in Cleveland. And now we have our own congregation. We just bought our own building, um, and thank God we are really part of a very very rich and vibrant synagogue life.
0: And at some point, you started small groups of women, in many cases, women with no prior spiritual or religious background. Yep. And somehow or another, they were drawn to something you were doing. What?
1: So, this is, this is how it started. So, our congregation really started in a very strange way. My husband, who is a moyal, so he does, you know, ritual circumcisions called bris, and he was meeting a lot of young Jewish families largely unaffiliated. Um, And so when he would meet them, he would say, Hey, you know, do you want to get together? Do you want to, you know, get together some friends and I'll come and teach a class. And so we had these small groups of parents and eventually these parents were telling us, you know, this is not the kind of Judaism that we learned growing up. And we want our kids to learn this kind of Judaism, meaning contemporary, relevant, interesting, inspiring. Will you start a Sunday school? So, we started a Sunday school, and parallel to the Sunday school, we had a parent program. Eventually, the parents wanted us to do bar and bat mitzvahs. Eventually, they wanted us to do high holiday services, and that's what mushroomed into our synagogue. But back then, when we were just a Sunday school, so one of the parent programs that we were running was a three-part series on marriage. And my husband was giving one of the sessions, and he mentioned this word called musur. And what he was saying is that in a marriage, each member of the couple has to be practicing this thing called musr, whereby each member of the couple is consciously and actively working on themselves to become a more refined human being and that that's how a marriage can thrive. After the class, one of the women came over to me and she said, Ruchi, what is this thing called musr? and should we be learning it? And I said, Yeah, I I said, I would love to learn it. Let's let's learn it together. And there was another woman standing right next to her. And she said, yeah, whatever you guys just said, I want to do it, too.
0: At this point, um, I'm going to interrupt you for just 10 seconds to say that the subtitle of your book, Soul Construction, is the following. Shape your character using eight steps from the timeless Jewish practice of Musar. And that's what you're talking about, and uh, and you introduced these women to the idea that marriage is like a forty year graduate program where you are improving, you're working on yourself, and that the marriage itself is a God given gift to draw out the best in one. Mm-hmm. Did I do I do I put that? More or less the way you see it?
1: No, yeah, I I appreciate you clarifying that. So it wasn't, this is interesting, actually, the class wasn't just for women. It was for women and men. It was the women who came over to me to say, (laughs) should we do this? Um, I do find often in our congregation that the women sort of lead the way in the spiritual pursuit And then the men sort of follow and they say, what what are all these women talking about? Let's do that too. And then, you know, that's what sometimes will happen. But in any event, um, that was my first muster group that I started. I would say that was maybe 13, 14 years ago. And we started this almost movement here in Cleveland where and now, now truthfully, over COVID, um, when I started streaming my classes, it's become international. So now I have people joining my classes online from all over. I have Toronto, Chicago, Israel, you know, really all over. And um, it began like. And this is the testimonials that I put in the book. It's in in the language of these women who study with me is how this ancient study has absolutely revolutionized their lives in real time. This concept that we're not stuck with the personality we were given, we're not stuck with the DNA we were given, but that we are not only empowered, but responsible for, um, you know, the way I like to say it is polishing our inner diamond and taking the raw materials that God gave us and refining them and making them as beautiful as possible. And that that's in our hands. We are not the victim of any circumstances. We are not at the mercy of our genetic code, but we can and must make it the best it can be. And those are the tools that I put in the book is, well, how do you actually do that? Because sometimes the circumstances we're up against or the people that we find ourselves with are, seem very limiting and very frustrating. And, and that's why these concepts are so empowering because they set you free from those limits.
0: And could you give me an example of something that was really uh, shocking and, and mind-opening um, to women at the very beginning of this process when you introduced them the idea that, hey, you could really do what differently?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you two examples. One example is when I, I started teaching about the character trait of anger. And I was pointing out that, you know, if a person has a responsibility to manage their anger, a spiritual responsibility, I'm not talking about a legal responsibility or how it impacts somebody else, but to your own self, the language that we use, like we'll say, you know, that person makes me so angry. That is disempowering language. And that one can free themselves from their disempowering. Language by saying that person triggers me so that I want to become angry, but I have the spiritual power to do something about that. And what's been so interesting about teaching Masur, because you know, I grew up with Masur, I learned it as a young child in school. I didn't even realize how revolutionary it was until I started teaching it to people who had never encountered it. And it was like you could see like light bulbs going off in people's heads. You mean somebody else can't make you angry? You know, And I was like, you have the power to do something about that. So that's one example. The second example I'll share, and this is one of the testimonials in the book, is a woman who always um, found her social power with sharing gossip about others. And it was a currency that was very well-received. Everybody wanted to hear her stories. She always had the news. She always had the latest. And it never dawned on her that there might be anything unseemly about that. And then she started learning these ideas about controlling your speech and about having refined speech and about trying to see the best in others, you know, and about not sinking to the lower common denominator and digging in and asking ourselves, like, why do we share stories about other people? What is that feeding in, in us? And, you know, is that a positive thing or a negative thing? And she says, like, as soon as she started, and this is not necessarily a typical story, but as soon as she started learning these ideas, she like stopped cold Turkey. She's like, I never even realized that that's not the kind of person I want to be. And that the people who are eating up these sort of stories are not the people who really like me for me. They like me for this currency that I'm selling. And she's like, I never knew that there was a different way to talk about people that I never even knew that that could be critically evaluated as positive or negative. So, these are some of the, like, revolutionary reactions I get when I start sharing these ideas with people.
0: The word Musar, um, it doesn't actually appear in Scripture, and yet it, it it's out there and it's uh, a central part of what you teach, and it's a central part of what has been taught in mainstream Jewish Bible colleges for centuries. Um, could you take a crack at de- defining it or what, what is this thing called Musar?
1: Yeah. So, there's the, like, you know, biblical usage, and then there's the colloquial usage. So, you know, King Solomon, for instance, uses this book, and he says, listen, my son, to the Musar of your father.
0: Oh, right. Very good. Yes.
1: Right? So, and, and, and he actually uses that word several times throughout the book of Proverbs, and it means their moral instruction, meaning to, like help another person by morally correcting, you know, where they need correction. Um, In the colloquial version, like, you know, in the Jewish community where I grew up, it was more used as like somebody, you know, giving you a talking to, like, are you giving me Musser right now? Stop telling me what to do, you know? So, it almost had this negative slant to it, like, don't give me Musser, <laughs> you know? Um, but really, the essence of the word is is moral correction and instruction. And what was revolutionary about the Musser movement, which was started a couple hundred years ago by Rabbi Yisrael Solanter, whom I quote in the foreword, he um, turned that around, really, That the muster or the moral correction or instruction that a person should be mainly focused on is towards themselves because it's very easy to give moral instruction to others because we see other people's flaws 24 seven. It's much harder and much more unpleasant to take a critical look at where we need moral correction. And, and that's what Rabbi Salander popularized, that we that we must have an organized, systematized, institutionalized approach to self-correction. And, um, you know, and he had all these different tools and all these different systems of how, all these different texts of how that was gonna work, you know, some of which I use in my classes. Um, but that's really the root of the word is is moral correction.
0: So I come to one of your classes. I'm sitting there and fairly early on, you say, does anyone have anything to say? And I say, yeah, Ruchi, you know what? I am who I am. How do you respond to me?
1: Go back to kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> no, kidding. I would never say that in a class. Uh, I would say it's true. It's true that you are who you are. And there's no doubt. That you were given your DNA, the decade you were born in, the family you were born to, your socioeconomic advantages and disadvantages. That is all 100% true. It is also true that that is simply a starting point, not an end point. That's where we begin. And we actually should take a hard look and, and self analysis at that and say, where am I starting? What are my advantages and disadvantages? What are my strengths and weaknesses? You know, and this is something I actually talk about in the book that in businesses, we're very eager to do this. We actually pay experts a lot of money to give us that kind of critical feedback. You know, there's in, in business, there's a there's a, a testing system called SWAT, S W O T, Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And you pay people good money to assess the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of your company, but rarely do we engage in this type of self-analysis as a human being, right? And that's all a starting point. So you're right. You are what you are. The spiritual question is, where do you go from there?
0: I I, I get it, and um, and I, I would even I I would I would I would add to that and say, look, we um we uh, we don't accept our bodies just as they are. We might decide to to lose weight, in, in my case, or, you know, a teenager might decide to spend a lot of money on pharmaceuticals to get rid of the acne on their faces. Um, we, we try and fix our bodies as much as we can. Uh, you know, you might feel that uh, you you don't have the upper body strength you need, so, you know, you might find a, a trainer who will help. In the same way, there's no reason why you should accept your soul the way it is. You should right. you should accept the spiritual part of you, and so um, being able to control anger. My goodness, what a, what a huge gift that is, isn't it? Imagine being able to bring that into a marriage. Yeah. To imagine what it's like to marry somebody who's already mastered the art of not losing a temper and letting fly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's very very true, and I think it's very very rare.
0: Because so I see the book Soul Construction. I mean, I even see it as a marriage gift, a wedding gift, to be honest, or an engagement gift, or a gift to uh, to people who are uh, at that point in life. Because, mm-hmm. gosh, what 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 a huge thing you're doing coming in into a marriage uh, with this pattern already in place. That I'm not just who I am. Yeah. Or at any rate, my plan is to do certain things today that'll make sure that tomorrow I'll be different from the way I was yesterday.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I see this as a great opportunity for couples to read together a little bit at a time and to use it as an opportunity to discuss reactions and places this would apply in their relationships. So, you know, sort of like a jumping off point to address Mm -hmm. some issues and, you know, strategize ways to do better.
0: Did anything or anybody in particular inspire you to look? Writing a book is hard. You know yes, that. It is. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just plain hard. That's all there is to it. Um, yeah. And so you, you, you know, to to do it successfully, unless it's going to take you know twelve years to write. But I mean, if you're just going to if you're going to write it and get it done, there's a whole lot of other things you'd rather do that have to be pushed to the side. and You just have to stay focused. And um, uh, what? What was your inspiration or who was your inspiration for this book?
1: Yeah. So, one of the things I write in my acknowledgments is that, you know, to every person who said to me after a lecture, this should be in a book somewhere, that's who inspired me to write this book. So, you know, I teach classes in my own community, but then I also travel. Um, I travel to Israel, where God willing, I'm going in a week and a half. I lead groups of Jewish mothers to Israel, and I teach them a lot of the concepts in this book. Um, different cities, communities bring me in to give lectures, and so a lot of times, people I don't know who have never heard these concepts before will come over to me after a lecture and they'll say, "Is this in a book somewhere?" Know because I would buy this book, I would buy it for my husband, I would buy it for my friend, I would buy it for my sister, I would buy it for my mother, you know. And like it really just planted a bug in my head. And I was like, the world needs this wisdom, and I say that from a place of deep humility because it is not my wisdom, this wisdom comes from far more ancient sources than me. I simply And I don't say simply, I'm extremely grateful for this opportunity, but I have been able to take this wisdom that is so ancient and so old, but so timeless and, you know, hopefully with God's help, translate it into contemporary language for contemporary people, you know, so that they can say, what like those stories from thousands of years ago can inspire my life in New York City in 2021 you know and this is like this is like mind blowing for people and so even though i do thank god seven kids one kid in law and a day job i said i have to write this book i just have to and i I wrote every Wednesday for two hours. That was my writing schedule, you know, and and that's why it took four years. But I was really, (laughs) really committed because it's a
0: great it's a great job. It's a really helpful book. And um, and and the 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 the, the big takeaway from this conversation, Rufi, to me, the big takeaway is this stunning insight which nobody knows about. And yeah. that is you don't have to be tomorrow the way you were yesterday. Yeah. And in the same way that you accept that physically, uh, you know, you might decide to go for a Botox treatment or a, a, a weight loss treatment. The idea that you can change your personality mm-hmm. and become a better person. Uh, you know a better spouse, a better sibling, a better parent, a better child that we are human beings and God gave us this ability to change, to be different. yeah that's to me that's a huge takeaway from our conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely.
0: well, what i'd I'd like to do is uh, if okay with you, I'd love to continue this conversation next week and delve a little more deeply into some of the other sections of the book. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. We shall do that then. So this is uh, Ruchi Koval, uh, the author of Soul Construction, which, uh, of course, you can find anywhere you buy books, but most conveniently at rabbidaniellappin.com, and um, you're going to Love it! It's 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 not. I don't want to say it's a breath of fresh air. It's more than that. Uh, it's really a blazing beacon of incandescence. It, it's things pop out at you, and you say yes. And what's more exciting than making more of oneself and having that sense of achievement that I've I've improved myself in this area? Maybe not a lot yet, but I'm on the road. It's a training program. This is basically. Uh, this book is a a gym for the soul, is what it really is. Um so we will continue talking with Ruchi next week. But until now, until then, uh, I'll wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a and a huge thank you on behalf of all our listeners. Uh you've given us a fantastic insight into this work. And I thank look forward you. to continuing next week.
1: Thank you so much. Same here.
0: I do hope you enjoyed this first part of my interview with Ruchi Koval, the author of Soul Construction, and uh, I know that this is something that you'll want to get yourself a copy of. Uh, You go to the website, (coughs) excuse me, rabbidaniellappin.com, or if you wish to get it digitally on your your Kindle, uh, you can just go to Amazon, or of course at our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, And uh, I I say get more than one copy because you may be interested in doing something that I know a number of people are already doing, and I've heard from many of you doing this already, which is that uh, uh, you might want to go through this book. This book is a manual for self-improvement, and that's part of what being a happy warrior is all about. You might want to do this together with somebody. And so uh, you get two copies, send one to your friend or your brother or your sister or your aunt uh, or whoever it is and say, hey, let's work on this chapter by chapter together. How about we set a Zoom meeting for a week from now? And during that time, we'll both go through chapter one and then we'll discuss it. Uh, this is hugely effective. And uh, I know that you will enjoy it. So the book's called Soul Construction, and you can, do, you can get that at Rabbi Daniel. Lapin.com or wherever you buy your books. So uh, go ahead and uh, and and do that, and just embark on on what's a really an exciting journey where you discover uh, what you can really accomplish, how how much about yourself you really can change. Um, really, it's what Make ourselves a better person. Make of ourselves a better person. Yeah, that, that's exciting. Um, next week, I want to. Um, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to talk to you a little bit about fear. Uh, I've seen a number of instances over the last few months where naysayers speak out, well, these, these are the most fearful times we're living in. Um, it's very hard for children. We're living in a time of climate change and rising sea level. We're living in a time where we possess the power to destroy the planet. Uh, you know, this, all this is terrifying stuff. And what I want to talk about, and I want to explain to you, is that fear is the default condition for human beings. That's just how the good Lord made us. Fear is our default condition. It takes being a happy warrior, training yourself to overcome that, so you stop feeling fear. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? Because there are so many different things that we are conditioned to feel frightened about and what you may not be aware of is that that's not necessarily so feeling frightened is like uh, you know a baby crying when it's cold you eventually discover as you grow up that even if you're cold you actually do not have to burst into tears well you discover that even if you are confronting challenging situations with possibly dire outcomes Fear is not one of the reactions it needs to induce in you. Anyway, I want to talk to you about that next week, and uh, and I just mention it now because I've been very into this lately, and uh, and if I can save any of you even a week of pain, I'd love to do that. And and I just want to tell you, if there's something you are frightened of, if there's something that is just really frightening you, uh, there is a way to stop that. And you won't feel that emotion of fear anymore. Um, you will feel energized to, to activate yourself. You will feel uh, motivated to do something. Uh, but the, the horrible, clammy sensation of fear is not something you have to experience at all. Even though we live in a culture that is pushing that as how we're supposed to live. But you know that the way we really are supposed to live is as happy warriors where we take care in the coming week of our family and our faith, of our friendships and our finances, and our physical fitness. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for being a happy warrior. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappen. God bless. Filling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.